I'm co-host Mike Wheeler. Sitting across from me is Kim Leary. As you may know, Kim's focus is on adaptive leadership, which she teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Mike, good morning. You teach virtually everywhere, thanks to your HBS Online Negotiation Mastery course. You've got, what is it now, participants from more than 100 countries? That is the number, and it's, it's growing. And uh, I think in some ways the best part of it is I never have to go to Logan Airport. I get all <laughs> of that done from here, just as we're doing right now with One Step Ahead. And the podcast actually allows us to connect with others who are intrigued about the importance of agility in both leadership, that's your world, and in mine, negotiation. I want to ask you a little more about agility in just a moment, but we also want this podcast to be one where our listeners can share their insights and their experiences with us on our website, Negotiation360. To get there, just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us. So agility, Mike, agility in leadership, agility in negotiation, agility in organizations, and in sports. Yes, and of course, sports have become a big business here in the uh, U.S., and I look forward to our upcoming conversation in just a minute or so with Andy Wassenchuk, who is a colleague of mine here at HBS um, and has been so for a number of years. Prior to that, he was Chief Operating Officer of the New England Patriots. And I hope we can learn about his agility in very complex, multi-party, many moving parts kinds of negotiations. Yeah, I I can only imagine what we're going to hear as we think about the agility on the field, but all the others, including Andy in his role as COO, who have to be absolutely agile in getting those guys to perform as they do. Well, let's see if we can settle in and perform at a decent level ourselves. Sounds good, Mike. What a beautiful day we've had today. It is a lovely Friday here in Boston, across the river from Cambridge, and uh, bright, bright, beautiful morning. Well, I'm so glad that uh, we have the company on a morning like this uh, with my friend and colleague, Andy Wassenchuk. And uh, you've met him in passing, I gather, and we talked a little bit beforehand. Uh, Andy is on the faculty at Harvard Business School in the negotiation organizations and markets group, but has led a very interesting life far from the Alston uh, campus. Uh, Has a degree in electrical engineering, came here and got his MBA some time ago, worked for Bain uh, in a consulting way, and then got uh, drafted. I don't know what, what, Andy, what draft choice, what round you were drafted uh, by the New England Patriots, not to play football, but to help manage the football team. When did that happen, Andy? I joined the Kraft organization back in uh, the very tail end of 1988, early 1989. And back then, they did not own the Patriots. Uh, they had just acquired that the, sta- the stadium that the Patriots were playing in the, at the time that was called Sullivan Stadium. That stadium had gone bankrupt 
I mean, there's a long story that goes uh, with that, but it was their desire to, to try to acquire the team at some point in time. And they saw the acquisition of the stadium as kind of a, an opportunity to maybe uh, set up a, a more favorable negotiation to acquire the team a year or two down the road. Yeah, this is a little technical. I know some of the story, but they owned the stadium, they owned the land. And what was interesting is in the lease with the Patriots, there was an operating clause. Correct me if I'm wrong in this, but that the Patriots were obliged not merely to pay rent, but to play there. Is that right? Yes, the operating covenant that existed in the uh, lease uh, was actually deemed, you know, from uh, you know Robert Kraft's perspective, the bigger asset that he was acquiring when he got the stadium. The stadium arguably was the, the, the slum of the NFL. There were, at that time, 30 teams, I believe, that competed, but it was really, really essentially a hole in the ground. The dirt had been pushed out to the side, concrete <laughs> board to keep the dirt from falling into the field, and uh, aluminum benches basically uh, provided the seating for 60,000 fans. But again, Kraft's uh, assessment there when he was uh, acquiring the stadium was that he was getting a covenant that basically forced the team to stay uh, with that particular lease and, and stadium uh, through the year 2001. You know, it was deemed that it would be very difficult for a team owner to really do particularly well financially, uh, and maybe even to survive, because the, the lease was also fairly uh, one-sided in favor of the stadium. It's an interesting example of bargaining power, but shifting to uh, to Kim's specialty in terms of uh, adaptive leadership, secure the rights to the team, but you've got to build a, a stadium. And Kim, just so Andy has a sense of what you mean by adaptive leadership, can you give it to us in a, several sentences? So adaptive leadership is really focused on when there's a, a, a challenge that belongs to a community, when there's a gap or a distance between what people are hoping for and what they're actually doing. So it's being able to look into a future state and imagine what thriving looks like while recognizing that the problem at hand looks a little bit different to everybody who has some degree of engagement with it and cares about the outcome. So so the community in this case would be community as we often think of it. Uh, this was in small town of Foxborough, uh, Massachusetts. To foreshadow the story a little bit, uh, it's possible that the team could have moved one place or another. We'll talk about that. But there's also the community in a broader sense, the National Football League has an interest in having successful teams. This isn't just a buy-sell negotiation. Um, it's where you lead the organization strategically. Can, can you tell us the, the story and what unfolded? We'll jump in with questions, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. They, the, <laughs> the themes, again, uh, around the time that uh, we took over the stadium, the expectation was that well, uh, the, the then owner of the team uh, was Victor Kayam, uh, and it, it was a somewhat of a financial struggle for him. He had uh, you know, uh, cut his teeth as a businessman uh, pretty much with uh, a leveraged buyout, of uh, a shaving uh, company, you know, the Remington, Remington Shaver, right. 
and was notorious for uh, you know basically uh, being his own uh, spokesman on uh, television commercials and the like. Uh, but uh, but he used uh, some success with that company to uh, then uh, essentially uh, borrow a lot of money and then uh, buy the uh, the Patriots without having uh, the stadium. Uh, I think he had uh, greater uh, ambitions than uh, than what were being ultimately uh, you know seen uh, both on his financial statements and on the playing field because unfortunately uh, in that era uh, late 1980s early 1990s uh, the team was actually you know a, a very uh, uh, challenged team. They didn't. I was uh, wondering spend... what you were going to use for an adjective there. <laughs> they weren't very good, as I think what what I would say. <laughs> No, they 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 uh, oftentimes uh, you know were were quite irrelevant by the tail end of the season. I recall you know when I was uh, you know first getting started, uh, it was not unusual in the November December uh, games that you might have had twenty thousand people in the stands. You know the the stadium was nearly empty. At uh, you know and, and from the standpoint of a stadium owner, that wasn't good for us because you know we uh, we were uh, generating revenues on parking or on uh, selling concessions and the like uh but uh, but clearly it was even worse for a, a team owner uh but he he kind of you know was was rolling with the mentality that well i, I i'm not gonna if i can't have enough revenues to pay the players then you know that's going to be the nature of the product obviously he uh he realized that uh, there was going to need to be a change and and we thought we would finally be able to to swoop in and, and purchase the team from him at a, a reasonable number but coincidental with that timetable was the fact that there was a void that uh, was created in the Midwest with a community that had been host to the Cardinals, uh, an NFL franchise in St. Louis. That franchise decided to relocate uh, to Arizona and uh, as a byproduct of having a, a very attractive you know, stadium put before them by the community. And so it was a, um, in their minds, a no-brainer to uh, to make that shift financially. It was going to be much better for the team, uh, but the void that was left in St. Louis uh, was hurt was was probably felt uh, the most by not just the community but but some of the businesses. The largest sponsor of the NFL at the time, and and still you know maintains a huge presence in the marketing dollars uh, for professional football, is Anheuser Busch. Uh, headquartered in St. Louis, and suddenly beer—that's no that's a have. beer company for you, T-totalers out there. <laughs> they happen to have a very significant shareholder. The family name was embedded in his name. It was James Bush Orthwine, and uh, and and basically he you know opted to uh, to step in and uh, what we thought was well overpay for the team. But he ended up acquiring the Patriots, and you know most people looked at that as a you know, likely scenario of him trying to move the Patriots then to St. Louis. And uh, so what we thought was going to be a year or two waiting game after we bought the stadium, suddenly we were a little bit uh, concerned that we may not ever end up with the, the, the team, uh, and we were going to be fighting a lot of legal battles to try to preserve our rights under the lease and the operating covenant that existed. So there were a couple of years there that clearly there were you know, saber rattlings around what was going to happen from uh, the Orthwine camp. They had hired Goldman Sachs, 
uh, but their specific instructions to Goldman Sachs was to sell it to anybody but Kraft, uh, <laughs> with the uh, very definitive uh, aspect that you know we had been, you know, kind of uh, more than a thorn in his side in terms of stopping any of the you know potential moves that uh, that he was contemplating, and as a result of that, he was uh, certainly going to enjoy the pleasure of. Uh, seeing somebody else end up with the team rather than us. So it's interesting, uh, it, you know, you lived and breathed this. I'm a local guy. Kim, you were probably still out in Michigan at this point and might not yes. have been reading the sports pages about Boston football. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, but this question of uh, the home for the stadium and what the fans are saying when they come or don't come to the game, all that's the ecosystem in which this negotiation is taking place. Right, Andy? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, from the fans' perspective, there's a, there's a sense that, you know, there's an emotional investment that fans make. Obviously, there's a, there's a financial investment when you're buying tickets or you're buying your, your, your favorite player's jersey or any of that stuff. But there, there's an emotional investment. There, there's, sports is, is kind of one of those unusual things that, that, that people really feel uh, a, a deep sense of commitment to when they, you know, begin to follow, you know, their favorite team and their favorite sport. It's, and it's, what was it's challenging like a, for... It, Andy, it's like they're, they have an identity, that they're oh, connected with the team. Yeah, but it was it, it, in that era. You know, obviously, it's not exciting to follow a losing team. Though there's examples around, you know, the country and around the world. I'm sure where you know you just have you you it's it's your love and your passion. And even if a team is struggling to to to, to win a third of their games, you know, there there are loyal fans that will will, will stay with it. Well, in our case, uh, you know, the Patriot fans back then, there was a, a, a second problem than just the, the poor on-field performance. They also had the problem of, you know, this constant threat that is the team actually going to stay? You know, if they're not going to be loyal to us, why would we ever want to be loyal to them? Um, and, you know, so the, the eventual outcome, you know, when um, Orthwine had, uh, had, had basically hired the investment bankers to sell the team, it took about six months for some, you know, very interested parties, viable parties that, you know, could have bought a football team. Uh, virtually all of them were coming to the same conclusion that the operating covenant covenant and the lease were real, real problems for an owner without having the stadium. And uh, eventually Goldman Sachs convinced Orthwine that the, 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 the most logical buyer would be Robert Kraft. You know, they said, let us work on Kraft as far as getting you, you know, a very attractive number, which they did. We at the time, Kraft ended up having to pay the highest ever paid for a football team. And it was well above what Orthwine had paid for it just two or three years earlier. So uh, let me but, just, uh, just hop in, though, just to annotate on this, because I was around and not in any of your meetings. This was really quite public. Reporters had the story and understood this complex leverage that you had the team handcuffed to this rotten stadium, you know, and that uh, St. Louis was an eager buyer uh, and so forth. So the balance of power here was very, very interesting and very complex. But ultimately, you guys get the team and you've got to figure out, you know, you're not going to play in the old falling down uh, Sullivan Stadium. What were the options at that point, and how did they relate to each other? I'm interested in the bargaining power aspect of this, and the fact it was all being played out in the public press. Yeah, that it. I mean, when when we 
managed to purchase the team. Uh, it was, again, much more of a financial stress, um, I think, than the Crafts were envisioning early on, because uh, just to kind of throw in the numbers, the, the Orthwine bought it just uh, over $100 million at that time. And, uh, and just a couple years later, uh, you know, Kraft had to uh, pony up uh, right around $170 million. And, uh, you know, the thought process of, you know, when we, you know, were telling Kayam that it was not worth $100 million, you know, to be paying that much more in, a, in, in just a, a few years is a head scratcher for most people. But the reality was that there was a significant shift or change that happened that allowed that, uh, that kind of valuation bump to take place across the entire NFL. And that was the, um, the collective bargaining agreement that was reached between the Players Association and the Management Council of the League uh, that basically took off the table uh, you know, the risk of work stoppages, of player strikes. Uh, during the 1980s, there were two different seasons that were significantly interrupted. Uh, and when you think about financing businesses that, you know, all of a sudden can't operate and can't generate the revenues that would be expected, uh, aren't a lot of banks that are lining up to, uh, to you know, lend money on that basis. But let me, so let me hop this, in. It's even more complicated, isn't it? Because it was at that time that uh, the network contracts were being negotiated. And to the extent that the value that was generated for the league from that was increasing, uh, players are getting a cut of that. It also probably made it easier to imagine investing in a uh, first-class stadium. Uh, but where does the stadium go? One possibility is to stay put in Foxborough, but in a keeping your options open way, you looked at other places as well. Is that right? Yeah, so I mean, once we kind of you know jumped in in the deep end with with the financial side of things, uh, Kraft made a further commitment to say that you know we are going to spend up to this collective bargaining agreements limit on player salary. So no longer are we going to be the lowest payroll team in the NFL. We're going to be you know paying as much as the rules will allow. Uh, and, and the fans were responding in accordance with that. To, to, and we basically you know, sold out on a season ticket basis um, uh, the entire stadium, which, which had not happened uh, in the history of the franchise prior. So there was now a question of we do not want to mess with this fan base. We certainly want to make sure that we have um, a home that is going to allow us to economically uh, pay for that kind of salary cap spending. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the existing stadium did not have uh, but a few what are called luxury suites. They did not have club seats. They did not have anywhere near the kind of revenue generators that all the other clubs did have. And those other clubs, uh, you, when you look at what is it that is the salary cap system or this collective bargaining agreement rule set, uh, what it defines a salary cap uh, and what numbers can be used, it's really, uh, I would say, more a revenue sharing scheme than kind of a, a pure limitation on monies. Just to, just to underscore that, the good news is that the pie was growing just in terms of pro football as a, um, as a revenue generator. But I, I don't want to lose the question of do you build a luxurious stadium 
where you are or to go elsewhere. And Kim, you also want to put something on the table too. Yeah, you know, most of us out there haven't and won't have a chance to engage in this kind of innovative and creative negotiation with so many moving parts. But what I'm so struck by, Andy, is the way in which there's there are multiple narratives, if you will, here. As you all are investing in this team, as you and the Kraft Enterprise are saying, we want you here, that message, as you say, was resonating with the fans. They must have seen something, uh, that, that increasing value that was important to them. But Kim, the thing that's funny is at the same time you're saying that, which is true, were you just flirting with Hartford and Providence, Andy, in terms of to getting a better deal from Massachusetts and uh, whatever you know the South Shore community is? Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, given the time limitation, I'll try to, to, to describe it ever so briefly. Um, so we'll probably lose a little bit of the, the texture of it. But, uh, you know, those two elements, Kim, that, uh, you know, we needed to engage the fans on, A, the, the confidence that the quality of the product was going to be high, and two, that we were here, we're staying, you know, here in the New England area, we're, we're preeminent, and those were key drivers that the fans were appreciating. Our first attempts were actually to build, you know, to see if there was a viable stadium site in Boston. And again, very uh, the, the very short story was that there was a great location, uh, but there were uh, key elements of leadership in the city that basically, you know, stopped it. Uh, they, they, they felt that uh, for whatever reason, it would not be good for the city. Uh, and uh, as a byproduct of that, we were forced to kind of look at a couple of other locations. We were always looking at building the stadium privately. Many other facilities around the um, the, the, the country were, were, were public facilities, so this idea of doing something where we would build the, city, the, the, the stadium in the city of Boston you know, was attractive uh, because we could, with the other revenue streams that, uh, for, for co-development, you know, make it work on that basis. Uh, once that folded, it, what, what was interesting is that there were a handful of other communities in the New England area that stepped forward and said, well, maybe there's a public-private partnership that could work because we'd be really interested in having you come uh, you know, uh, play your football games in our cities. We, we see the benefits uh, in, in, in a lot of different uh, areas of what that could be, and Hartford and Providence were the two locations that we engaged, and it was not a superficial discussion, Mike. It was huh. really... Uh, quite intense in, in the thought process again was doing this in a city you know would would benefit both parties uh, it's one of those win-win propositions in both cases there were definite strengths associated with the sightings that were contemplated but in both cases uh, we found that uh, whether the costs associated with stretching the fan base or the risks associated with what was happening in the Hartford site location a lot of generous offers were made from the community as far as the construction of the building but the problem was that it was on a site that uh, had uh, hazardous materials and it and it basically represented an unlimited liability. Nobody was really sure what one would find there. 
What we realized at that point in time, after all the different discussions with the cities, was that uh, we might actually have greater control, uh, ability to, to control our destiny, if you will, if we tried to, to rebuild a new stadium, a state-of-the-art facility, right in Massachusetts, in Foxborough, in the site that where we already controlled 300-plus acres. And given the fact that it's a going business and it's won six Super Bowls, uh, things seem to have worked out okay. Let me ask you a question, and then Kim, I think, will bring us to a close with another one. You got your MBA from Harvard Business School, and Kim and I are looking out the window here to classrooms that you surely visited more than once uh, and which you teach in now. But you took a required course in strategy, I'm sure, in your first year, and then you consulted with companies for Bain. My question is is this, as you think about strategy and what it entails, what did you learn from this saga, this story of, of getting the Patriots and being able to build both the stadium and an organization in a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of moving parts as as Kim says, uh, I think it probably went beyond your education here. What what did you take from that experience? Well, I think you know it, it, it's a funny you know dynamic in terms of when you ask the question of of, of what's the recipe for success in a, a situation like this, and as in so many areas of life, I think it's a very um, delicate balance of both you know thoughtful planning and, and strategizing ahead of time, because there were a lot of moves that Kraft made and thought about, and even the sequence of not just thinking he's got to acquire the stadium to get to the team. He actually um, acquired an option on the land around the stadium before he got the stadium, and that's what made him the most likely buyer or, or the most likely winning bidder when the auction was held out of, in bankruptcy court to, to acquire the, the uh, stadium itself. So the strategizing you know, required thoughtful planning and, and thinking about the different pieces, but at the same time, this tension or this balancing act has to deal with the ability to engage with one's agility to you know, pivot and move. Even though you have plans, you have to you know, be able to change. So the plan that we had was, okay, we're going to get the stadium and then we're going to buy the, stadium or buy the team from, from, from Kayam and suddenly unbeknownst to us, you know, one couldn't have planned for the, the timing of the St. Louis Cardinals moving to Arizona, uh, the timing of a you know, very deep-pocketed individual coming in and buying the Patriots. And so those pivots make you change plans and think about, okay, what are the near-term things that we can work on that ultimately will allow us to get to the next uh, milestone or pivot point in the plan? Well, you're on one step ahead, which is our podcast. Kim, what would you add or ask in response to Andy's observations? Well, there's such a, such a rich set of stories, Andy, about words that m maybe we don't necessarily put first and foremost in our negotiations, but about what the community is entrusting us to do, what um, hope and vision exist. I guess we talk about that more in our classrooms. What hope and vision exist and how one uh, begins to uh, identify those moments where the story is changing and you are changing your strategy right along with it. So Andy, it's been great to have you with us today. This is 
near the beginning of the football season. And uh, when you see the team, you're only seeing part of the game, I guess, is one of the takeaways here. So, Kim, great to be along this ride. You and I are fans here. And, yes. uh, and it's been great having you on board, Andy. Thank you so much. Well, that was a lot of fun, Mike, and a lot to think about. And we may come back to this topic in later episodes. But before you tell me what's happening for you in coming days, Mike, let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us. We hope the domain name expert makes that memorable and intriguing. So what's next for you, Mike? Well, I'm planning to go up and see uh, our younger daughter's family in Vermont and take a detour uh, through Amherst and visit Amherst College and see an old roommate there. So that's going to be a lot of fun seeing family and friends. And I'm heading off to Washington, D.C. for a few days to see some friends and also to be part of an award ceremony recognizing some young leaders who are doing remarkable work and are off starting their internships. Great. Well, I hope to hear more about that and whether we can fold some of that into future podcasts. But it's been great being with you today. Kim, have a fabulous weekend. Enjoy yours, Mike.